Remembering that God always, always blesses the reading and the hearing of his word, hear the word of the Lord that he has for us today as it's found in Mark's third chapter, beginning to read at the first verse. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue, and a man was there who had a withered hand. And they watched him to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man who had the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good? or to do harm, to save life, or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. Here endeth today's reading of God's Word. From time to time, I cannot help but wonder what Jesus thinks of his biographers. Those individuals who wrote those books, the canonic gospels that we know as Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I wonder if Jesus is pleased with what they have said about him. Or I wondered if Jesus once in a while doesn't collar one or more of them in one of the halls of heaven and ask, why did you say that about me? Or why didn't you tell them this? You know, when anybody today attempts to write a biography about someone else, it seems that the work never even gets out on the market until the person, if he's still living, who is the principal or at least relatives of that person, are suing the writer for liable. Things that they have said against the one written about. I don't know what Jesus thinks of those who wrote about him, just as I really can't be sure what Jesus thinks of some of us who preach about him, that if I think Jesus had any justification at all, it would have been against what Mark says about him in this third chapter. You know, Matthew and Luke, they tell of the incident in the synagogue, it's Capernaum, where Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, but they leave out a part that Mark puts in. And it's a part that I think could very well disturb Jesus. 
Because here Mark tells us that Jesus, the Son of God, the one who came to give us the revelation of what God is like and how we are supposed to live, this patient, kind, forgiving, loving Jesus, Mark says he gets angry. Now, for angry people to read this, I'm sure they missed it entirely, but this is a unique thing for somebody such as Mark, who in the fifth verse of the third chapter said that Jesus looked around at them with anger. That I don't know what Jesus thinks of his biographers or preachers, but I know, for one, I'm very happy that Mark included this particular part of our Lord's personality. I'm very happy because, for one reason, it does me a lot of good to know that our Lord got angry. And it seems to me then there must be some type of justification for some kinds of anger if the Lord himself got angry. Another reason is that this helps me to see what kind of people and with whom Jesus got angry. And please, folks, notice, there are two places in the scripture that speak of Jesus being upset. And notice, he always is speaking to church people. The only two incidents that I recall that reveal Jesus' anger always takes place in a worship service. This one at a house of worship at a synagogue at Capernaum, and the other one where Jesus got upset with money changers in Jerusalem who had turned that temple into a den of thieves instead of allowing it to be a house of prayer. And I'm happy he wrote about this because it enables us to see not only what it is that makes Jesus angry at church people, hard-heartedness, but what is even more important, this passage gives us some indication of what causes hard-heartedness that angers Jesus and gets him upset with us. And today I want to address your attention to those particular things in people's lives that make for hard-heartedness and which brings eventually the anger of Jesus, who, as the psalmist says, is a Lord who is slow to anger but who we must never forget is capable of being angry with us. Now one of the things that hardens the heart, as I read these verses in the beginning of the third chapter of Mark's Gospel, is hard-heartedness comes to us when we remain spectators. When we remain spectators, 
If there's one thing that Jesus did not care for, was the inactivity of people. Jesus never expects anybody who God creates to remain on the balcony of inactivity, but rather he wants us all to get on the stage of involvement. Just listen to our Lord. Listen to what he says and what he is saying by the power of his Spirit to us. Come unto me, and I will make you fishers of men. Go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. Whatsoever you have seen, do. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should bear much fruit and that your fruit should abide. Involvement, activity, participation, partners, people who do things. And when we become only spectators, that's an indication that our hearts are beginning to harden. Just as we no longer go out and do some of the things that we did in younger days because we're afraid of the physical heart, signs of inactivity, involvement in God's Word are indications that our spiritual heart is beginning to harden. Jesus says, don't be a watcher. Don't be a spectator. For when your involvement is limited only in watching and seeing what other people are doing, you cannot help but become cynical, critical, and contemptible. And you start an epidemic which can be very, very contagious. And my own evaluation of the situation is simply that one of the reasons that we are people who are so critical, so cynical, and contemptible is simply that we have yielded to the temptation of being spectators in the game of life. You see, Jesus knew long before we had these other things that no fan, no matter how enthusiastic, ever hit a home run, scored a touchdown, dunked a basket, participated in a play, preached a sermon, or sang a good anthem. Spectators just don't have the privilege of participating and producing fruit in life. A spectator is good only for criticism, cynical remarks, and becoming contemptible. The other day, I attended an athletic event in the city of Pittsburgh. It was one of those that I went to, and a few minutes after I was there, wish I hadn't gone. Paid good money, too. But I had the privilege of sitting in front of one of the original leather lungs. You know what I mean? And the worse things went on in the field, the louder my friend got. That poor player or players down on the field, they couldn't do a thing right. 
Their heredity was questioned. <laughs> Their talent was in doubt. It got so bad that I really got the feeling that they really hoped that players would not produce because they wouldn't have anything to say or do if they were successful. They were like the critics of Jesus. They watched, hoping that they could accuse. Now, that was bad enough. But I put in a horrible afternoon. Because the more I listened to this person, the uglier I got. Because my attention was diverted from what was going on in the field to the mental gymnastics of trying to think what I could say in response to that spectator. And I became a spectator to his spectacle. <laughs> and I became horrible. Very critical, not of them, but of him. Very cynical, contemptible, and unlike Christ. As I can tell you in the privacy of our friendship, I even wish that person got a sudden case of laryngitis. <laughs> and that's horrible. All because, though we paid good money, and I know anybody who pays has a right to his feelings, we all left that place very angry simply because we were spectators. And I tell you this because, you see, we are a people who are living in an age when it's very easy, with all of the blessings that we have, to become excellent, outstanding, enthusiastic spectators. And that's horrible. It's been some time now since I've been able to get the latest statistics, but do you know that the average American watches television 26 hours of every week? You see what's happening to us? When you live in such wonderful areas in which we find ourselves dwelling, and in our own backyard have a Heinz Hall, a civic arena, Three Rivers Stadium, Syria Mosque, cinemas that have specials on Monday and Tuesday. <laughs> when we are privileged to participate in churches that have efficient staffs. And when we can come and sit and listen and don't even have to put anything in the offering basket. What is happening with all of these blessings is that we are becoming more and more people who are only spectators. And as we do become more of the spectator class, there's really not much more we can do except become critical and cynical and contemptible. And may God have mercy on our souls when we become like that. Because God didn't create any one of us to be like that. He created us so we'd be alive 
and participate. Get involved. And see, instead of being critical, whether or not we can do a better job than those we criticize. And when Jesus looked around and saw those people who were only watching so that they might accuse, he recognized hardness of heart, and he became angry. One thing that goes into hard-heartedness is a wanting to remain a spectator. A second thing is, and comes when an individual wants to retain his silence. Silence. See, God loves people who aren't afraid to speak up. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. He enjoys us when we sing, even when we do so in a monotone. But he enjoys to hear the voices of people. And if you've ever gone through a period in your life when you've been unable to speak, and some of us have known that horribleness of silence, you don't realize what a great blessing it is to be able to sound forth words until you can't do it anymore. God knows that. And he wants us to speak and to speak up and to speak loudly and clearly and not to be silent because silence can be, not necessarily, but it can be a symptom of hard-heartedness. Jesus recognized this principle of life. That is why when in his teaching method, often when people asked him questions, he always responded by asking a question in return. Now, he did this not to evade giving answers. He did so because he knows the best form of education is not in giving answers, but helping people to form verbally their own answers. So he says, who do you say that I am? What do ye more than others? Do you know what I have done unto you? What does it profit a person? To gain the whole world and lose his own soul. Those are questions that Jesus asks, and he's still asking them. And he expects us to wrestle with the questions of life and to answer them the best that we possibly can. Not just take some poor preacher's word for it, but to work that through our own mill and to come up with our own answers. Then we become people of conviction, and Jesus then and still now confronts us and bombards us with questions that he wants us individually to answer with our own voices. And he gets upset sometimes when to his questions of life we answer only with sight. You know, there's only four reasons why people are silent. Do you realize that? Only four reasons, and only one of those four is justifiable. The only form of justifiable silence that I can find in the scriptures comes when an individual, such as Jesus, 
has answered the questions of life, knows he has answered them, has already stated them, and knows that his opposition knows them, and does not repeat them simply because that would be only for the sake of repetition and would do absolutely no good. So that is why Jesus, before Pilate, before the scribes and the chief priests, remained silent and said not a word because he knew that his silence even then was a sermon and a stance that was even greater than all the words in the world. But Jesus, I think, gets very upset with us when we remain silent for one of the other three reasons. When you remain silent to the questions of life, to the irregularities of conduct, to the injustice in the world simply because you are frozen with fear, fear that you might be wrong, fear that you might be contradicted, fear that you might be faced with confrontation, fear that you might be ostracized for saying some of the things that you say then. I'm sorry, you're showing signs of the hardness of the heart. When an individual is silent because he really does not believe what he or she has to say is worth anything, then the first stages of the hardness of heart that comes with a sense of personal unworthiness has already set in. And when an individual remains silent and does not speak because he just doesn't care, that's a person who spiritually, if not physically, is dead because his hard heart is so firm it can't beat anymore. And I suggest to you that that is what Jesus really saw in those Pharisees who were only sitting and watching, waiting to accuse him. They couldn't care a hang about that man who had the dangling hand. They didn't care whether or not he found healing or comfort. They were there for one reason, not to help that man, merely to accuse Jesus. And when Jesus said unto them, is it lawful? on the Sabbath day to do good or to do harm, to heal or to kill? They answered him with silence because their hearts were hard. There's another thing that goes in to making hard-heartedness. Not just when we are willing to remain spectators or to retain our silence, but when we refrain from getting surprised. You ever realize it? We like to plan surprise parties as long as they're for the other person. <laughs> We really do not like surprises, though we may tell people that we do. Do you realize that? 
heard an excellent sermon on this this past summer up at Chautauqua by Dr. James Forbes, a man from the Pentecostal tradition teacher at Union Seminary in New York. I hope we're going to have him here in Baker's time sometime soon. You'll enjoy it. But he helped me to realize a fact that I had not thought of before, and it's simply that most of us are embarrassed to be surprised. You realize that? You are embarrassed and would like to be so sophisticated that you don't want to be surprised. If tomorrow morning, the early morning weather forecaster tells you that there's a 50% chance that it's going to rain, we forget that that means there's a 50% chance that it will not rain. And we will lug around all day the raincoat and the umbrella just so that we will not be surprised when it starts to drip rain. Little Johnny comes home from school. He has been surprised because he has found some new dimension in his life and he's even surprised himself that he has such talent by winning a particular contest. And mom and dad, they're a little embarrassed because they're surprised they didn't know this little genius had it in him. He should have told them when he was two years old how smart he was, but he didn't. And they're embarrassed to be surprised. A friend becomes guilty of some antisocial behavior. And instead of us being shocked to our eye teeth with surprise that such a thing could happen to somebody that we know, whom we thought we loved, we usually, in a sophisticated way, respond saying, I always knew there was something wrong with that person. Just imagine the number of times in the last week when you did everything in your power to refrain from being surprised. That's tragic. That's tragic. Because you see, what happens when we do that every other day, when we come into the house of God and I say unto you, God loves you. You sit just like you're sitting right now. And I can say, God can take the most horrible, dirty sin that you have, and by His grace, He has forgiven you. Surprise! You really think so? I can say, aren't you surprised that God has given you this beautiful day in which to live? I guess so. No surprise, no real joy. And that's too bad. Because that's a sign that our hearts are becoming hardened. I'm going to confess a surprise that I have right now. It's been a horrible week. And I don't mind telling you that I've had a difficult time with this sermon. Yesterday morning, I was in Washington County for a funeral at 11. Appointment in Pittsburgh at 1.30. Presided a beautiful wedding here in this sanctuary at 6.30. It was a part of a elaborate and wonderful reception in Butler at 8 o'clock. And when I closed my eyes at 
little after midnight and started a little bit before 6 a.m. this morning and this sermon didn't click I've been worried for the last five hours and my staff can tell you I haven't been the easiest one to live with this morning but I'm surprised it's gone pretty good <laughs> hallelujah I guess the old heart still can take it. And if you are a person who still wants to remain a spectator, retain your silence and refrain from being surprised by life, supplement, supplement with those things that can keep your heart soft. Get involved. Speak up. And leave this place surprised with what God has done to your heart today. Doesn't that sound a little childish? No, childlike, yes. Unless we become as little children, in our hearts at least, will not enter the kingdom of God. Father, thank you for speaking to us, for inviting us to get involved again, and for letting us be surprised on one of these, the most glorious days you've ever created. Father, keep our soft hearts even softer. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of his Holy Spirit be and abide with you all.